ESG has exploded into compliance and business consciousness. Join Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, on the ESG Report and learn about sustainability risks, opportunities, and issues that business leaders and compliance professionals need to know about regarding ESG. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back for another episode. And today we have double trouble because I have Ben, Kyle Purcell. They are with Till Investors. And I think we're going to talk about ESG, but who knows? Guys, first of all, welcome. And thank you both so much for taking the time to visit with me today. Thank you for having us. We're thrilled to be here. Yeah, great to be here. Could you tell us a little bit about your professional background and leading up to your current roles today? Yeah, I would love to. I uh, started off uh, my first job out of uh, college. My first real job out of college was at Morningstar. Many years ago, I was Morningstar's 40th employee. So that was a, a good way to start off into the world. And from there, I developed a parallel career within the financial environment, in particularly in the investment world, but also but focusing on my role as a communicator and an educator. So I've had opportunities to work for some large asset management companies. Back in 2005, I started Purcell Communications, which is basically a kind of a communication uh, arm where we work with asset managers on content, reporting, education, that kind of thing. But I've always had a really compelling interest in the role that sustainable investing could have in the way that we think about money, the way that we invest our money. And Ben works with me at Purcellcom. He also has a pretty compelling history in terms of being interested in corporate social responsibility. So when we put our two heads together, we decided to co-found Till Investors. And that's our kind of effort to take what we've learned and what we know about how sustainable investing works or should work and share that information, break down this, close the gap between interest in it and uh, awareness of how to do it. Yes, I'm a classic MBA with a focus in business. And as with the classic MBA, you sort of jump around industries, you jump around consulting, but it's always been with a focus on corporate social responsibility, accountability for businesses, making money in what I'm going to call the right way, making money in a way where you're creating value that people want and not just extracting value from the world. And so when I landed uh, with Kyle at Purcellcom and we were working in the uh, investment world, when this concept of ESG started bubbling and started bubbling, I said, this is where I want to be. And so we launched this Till Investors Initiative really to, as Kyle said, close that gap between wanting to be invested sustainably and actually executing uh, on that desire. When did you guys found Till? Officially last year. Officially it was 2022. But we've been working behind the scenes on it for since 2020, since really since the, the the pandemic started to happen, and the level of interest in ESG as a as an investment strategy really started to grow. It started to take off. There was quite a lot going on in the world at that time. We both knew we wanted to participate, bring our strengths to the table, and we took our time about making sure we knew what we were talking about before we started talking. As you may know, I come from the world of compliance and I started with anti-corruption compliance. One of my first aha moments was compliance as a process. And that if you view it as a process, then you can study it, measure it, improve it, or monitor it and improve it. And I've tried to take that lens really throughout everything I look at. And when I first stumbled on and then read about in any depth ESG, it struck me 
that this was a process because it was the first time I had seen disparate silos of information with an organization in one roof, under one roof, headed either by a director of sustainability, ESG, or perhaps even at the board level. And it struck me that this was a, a process which allowed a person or a group of persons to have a much more holistic view of their organization. Basically, how much are we spending it? How are we spending it? How are we governing all of that spend? And I became very excited for that reason. In addition to some of the reasons you guys talked about for the finding of uh, founding rather of uh, till uh, investors. First of all, I'd like to ask you to comment on my view of ESG, but then really talk about the mission of till investors and how you bring the investment focus to the consuming public. So I will say this is, I've heard ESG described a lot of ways. Uh, I've not ever really heard it described as a process and I'm going to start talking about it as a process now. Thank you very much because that's exactly right. It's both a process within a company, right? The company, how it executes on its ESG uh, initiatives, but also it's a process of evaluating an investment. If you're an investment manager, there is a, there's it. The challenge that we see in the industry so much right now is that people want to call ESG a data point, right? It's a check the box. This is an ESG company. This is not an ESG company. And that does a disservice to ESG and anybody participating in it, right? It really is a journey. We're in the middle of it now. It might not ever end, but it's all about thinking about the way that a company interacts with the world around it, understanding the risks of maybe interacting in a way that's unhealthy and investing in a way that recognizes those risks and encourages better corporate citizenship. So thank you for introducing the the process thought to there. In terms of our mission, uh, I really I like to think of us as ESG evangelists, right? We really are believers that ESG investing is a more meaningful way for individuals and and organizations to invest. It helps you think about your money in a more holistic way. It helps you think about your investments as an extension of yourself. And so really our mission is to increase the capability of the general population to invest in this way. And I think what sets us apart from most of the thought leaders in this area is that we're not, we are intentionally not aligning ourselves with a specific investment. We are not here telling you this is the right investment for you. Instead, we are talking to you about the process, thank you, Tom, of participating in ESG. How can you find a fund or a company that matches your values? How can you click that button and make a choice that's going to be right for you. Where do you find them? How are they labeled? Really, we want to meet you where you are, talk to you in a way that's comfortable to you, and help you get your hands around ESG in a way that works for you. I think it's worth adding on to that, that if we believe, Ben and I, if we believe that investing with your values in mind meant that you were absolutely going to sacrifice a significant amount of return, I think we might hesitate to move forward with the kind of work that we're doing right now, even though there's some aspect where everyone is willing to some degree 
to try to accomplish things in this world without necessarily having to make a ton of money off of it. But, but the, the point is that the data, the historical studies, all manner of historical studies have shown that, in fact, it isn't financially problematic to invest in this way. And if that's the case, then there's really nothing standing in the way of people doing it. Let me take another observation that I took from the compliance world that I've applied to ESG, and it's the following. So I grew up professionally in Houston in the energy industry, and Houston is the epicenter of Foreign Corrupt Practices Act violations in the world, meaning more enforcement actions come out of Houston than any other city on earth because of energy, and so many energy companies are in Houston. What I saw separate and apart from the legal response, meaning DOJ enforcement actions, was companies creating compliance programs, but then requiring anyone who did business with them to have a compliance program, literally down to a software company with one piece of software that did something downhole that was worth $15 billion, and it was three people. And they had no, they were too small to have their own sales force. And I said, look, guys, you don't have a compliance program. You're not going to get any investment money. I finally talked him into uh, letting me put one in. And sure enough, two weeks later, someone came in and gave them a huge round of funding. And the second thing they asked for after the numbers was their compliance program. I actually see that now in ESG. And I still do some legal work for $100, $200 million companies in the petrochemical space. And they're being required by the Shells, by the Exxons, by the big plant owners to have an auditable ESG program, generally focused on the E, but many times broader. And that's where I see the real corporate change coming from when businesses are required to have a, a program, whether it's compliance or ESG, to simply have access to the big players. Is that something you guys have observed or is that really in a different realm of inquiry? Yes, 100%. So what I'll say on that, when we think about this, when we look at, for example, a Nike, there will be requirements for Nike to disclose how they're the characteristics of their tier one suppliers, their tier two suppliers on and down the line, right? So it's the supplier that's supplying the supplier that's supplying Nike, right? And the challenge here is that where you're coming from with the legal and compliance, you've got lots of really well-written and well-established laws and regulations and all of those things. And in the world of ESG, unfortunately, at this point, that's just not there yet. And so largely, they are quote-unquote voluntary efforts. Now, Nike or their competitors might get in a lot of trouble by not participating. So there is some sort of incentive for them to do this. But absolutely, that same pattern of let's make the big fish responsible for the smaller fish absolutely happens in ESG as it does in uh, legal compliance. Kyle? Yeah, I would agree with that. I think it's worth pointing out that Ben is absolutely right that the compliance regime in the U.S. is behind the curve. Companies are out front in reporting and being transparent about their ESG efforts and trying to measure them and trying to package up and report on that data well ahead of what the SEC is expecting of them at this point in time, although the SEC is trying to catch up. It's just taking a little while. Uh, but that's happening. They're doing it without being forced to legally because the demand 
especially from large institutional investors, is so intense. We tend to talk with smaller institutions, individual investors, advisors, the world above that, the world of large institutional players, they're already so far ahead in terms of knowing what they want from their investments, making sure that what they invest in is aligned either with their missions or their brand or whatever it is, or their employees' interests or what have you. And they're putting so many demands into their investment programs that the, any company that wants to be considered for that kind of large institutional investment is got to get on its horse and make this stuff happen. So regulations are a little bit behind that curve, but it's coming because the, the businesses are already well on their way to trying to figure out how better to do it, how better to measure, how better to report, what transparency means, how to define their programs or prioritize. So that's all happening and the big money is pushing it in that direction. And we'll get to a place where compliance tries to codify that into something that's a little bit more consistent across the board. So if I come to tell investors, or if I'm already a customer or client of yours, how do you help me think through an ESG investment? Ben, you mentioned, do they have a little green piece of ivy basically on their logo, meaning they're green? Are you looking at their corporate governance structure? How are you guys evaluating it? And then how are you communicating or perhaps in dialogue with your own clients and customers about their types of investments? When we talk with our clients, we the first thing we do is we say, it, it's much easier to think about this when evaluating a fund as opposed to evaluating a company, right? When you're going to go and evaluate a company, you can go down a really deep rabbit hole in terms of what they're saying, in terms of what NGOs are saying, in terms of what their competitors are doing. And for most investors who are on our level, the easier and healthier thing to do in terms of diversification is to invest in a fund, right? And so when you are investing in a fund, in an ESG fund, we tell them there are three things to look for. We call them fighting styles. At an ESG fund, the first thing that they can do is they can reward the good companies. So you want to say, how is this fund deciding what is a good company? What are they telling me about what's good and how are they investing in that? The second fighting style is avoiding, right? So what are they saying? This is not a very good uh, company from an ESG standpoint. Here's how we're filtering out or maybe divesting from entire industries, right? Many ESG funds will divest from fossil fuels, right? And the third is, how are they engaging? How are they engaging with the companies that they invest in? And this comes down to things like proxy voting, things like engagement meetings, and how are they really trying to influence the companies that they are invested in, whether they are good or bad, quote unquote, from an ESG perspective, how are they voting to help move those companies in a way that is more ESG friendly? So it's really those three different tacks that we're looking at when we look at a fund. Kyle, anything to add into that? No, I th but that's really key is to understand yourself well and to understand what you prioritize. So we talk about the fighting styles because we think it's a missing link. A lot of, whether we're talking to individuals, wealthy families, or small institutions, there, a lot of them are, are engaging with advisors or some kind of an intermediary. And in a lot of cases, intermediaries, they just want to know the answers to questions. Do you care about the climate? Do you care about social justice? Do you care about gender lens investing? 
they're just looking at the, those individual values, right? We think it's important to go beyond that and ask people about the strategy that they feel comfortable with. The reason we say that is that if you're someone who really believes in a rewarding approach where you, when you're making that investment, you really want a, a fund or an investment option that's going to evaluate and discern on, on your behalf what is what they view as being a high quality ESG investment. That's going to put you in a very different place from an exclusionary strategy that's just going to say, we don't want to invest in guns or alcohol or whatever it is, right? And then you'll end up with a portfolio that doesn't really look anything like what you think investing with, with these kind of non-financial issues in mind looks like. And that's where you end up with people making complaints, talking about greenwashing, being concerned about performance or risk. That's where a lot of the misconceptions and confusion comes in. So it's really important in our mind to go beyond that. Just let's talk about what your values are and move into what are you looking for from this strategy and the fighting styles, as we call them, that, that really helps. Let me turn to the issue of greenwashing. Uh, and it's a term that many people have, they may not understand, but we had a a, fair, a fairly large enforcement action this week involving a business unit of, of Deutsche Bank the SEC fined some $25 million for. Could you explain what greenwashing in and is and how you guys see how pervasive the problem really is? Go ahead, Kyle. Okay. <laughs> Let me say this. I, I think it's important to talk to the second point first, how pervasive it really is. Because what we encounter pretty often are people who either really don't have a framework to think critically at all about claims that are being made about the greenness of, a, of an investment portfolio or of a company. So they may not be aware that of, of any kind of greenwashing that's going on. And then on the flip side of that, you have people say, all of these companies, all of these funds are just pushing a, a load of, of horse puppy. There's no such thing. There's no way that you can invest this way. It's really important that you not get sucked into, into those extremes, um, because what we're really seeing is that there are a lot of very legitimate strategies out there that are, and, and the, the investment industry language, of course, it, it doesn't talk about values and things of that nature. Instead, they're really focused on non-financial considerations. What are the material non-financial considerations that need to be included when you're making an investment decision? Because you need to understand the roles that those non-financial issues can play in the long-term sustainability of the company, which is why we like to call it sustainable investing. Because at the end of the day, a company that succeeds by not giving its workers uh, a living wage, so it's really about putting the, the values conversation and the investment conversation kind of on parallel tracks. There's different degrees of greenwashing that do exist out there. There are companies that put out a lot of, we're, we're an ESG fund, but they don't really know. They don't either have a good ESG strategy or they don't know what a good ESG strategy is. So, so they have a tendency to make a lot of claims without really knowing even how to back them up. So then they start talking about how their efforts are proprietary and they can't show anybody what they're doing and that kind of thing. In general, we think investors need to be very demanding of transparency. There's, there may very well be good proprietary strategies out there, 
But at the end of the day, if I'm investing with ESG in mind, I really need to know a lot more about what you consider to be ESG and how you evaluate that. Proprietary doesn't really cut it for me as an investor because I don't really feel like I know whether I'm getting a greenwashed sales pitch or not from that. Yeah, and I think part of the reason that we're we exist. You, know, you talked about our mission earlier is that we want to help people empower people to ask those questions, right? To to be comfortable looking, maybe not at the super fine print, but maybe the second or third smaller print, and feeling confident they can look in that. And if they don't get what they are looking for being willing to say, okay, this one's not for me. It's not a coincidence that the firms that are getting called out from are the same ones who are really leaning on that proprietary label saying, trust us, we got it under control, don't ask any questions. That doesn't work in ESG. And if you as a consumer are getting that from your fund provider, maybe you need to look for a different fund. I'd like to turn to your book, Sustainable Investing in ESG Starter Kit. My first observation is the subtitle may be more powerful than the title, but leaving <laughs> that eccentricity of mine aside, why did you guys write this book? So first of all, I will say we spent a long time debating that title and what goes first and what goes later. And we said, you know what? ESG is what's happening today, but in three years, it could be something completely different, right? The, the terminology is something different. At the, at the end of the day, we feel that sustainable investing is a more sustainable uh, term. Uh, so we'll see what happens. We'll, we'll be happy to be proven wrong there. Um, but in terms of why we wrote it, there's really just a gap in the market for people who are interested in doing sustainable investing, but need more than a uh, Instapedia article or a Nerd Wallet article telling them the 10 hottest ESG funds and want to do something a little bit more holistic, but also don't want to take a three-month course in ESG investing. There's got to be a happy medium somewhere. And really, this was born out of our frustrations as when we wanted to be sustainable investors, that there wasn't that sort of go deeper, but don't go all the way deep, to That where the focus is really on helping you uh, put things into action, helping you actually say, okay, now that I've spent a little time with this book, I'm comfortable with the concepts. I know what I'm looking for. I know what I'm looking out for. And I know I have an action plan in place to go ahead and, and invest. So it was really, we feel, we, we wrote it because we felt like it needs to be out there. We focused on, we, we wanted to focus on the individual investor, mostly because we feel like the high net worth investor and institutions, institutional investors there's much more awareness and knowledge there. So we wanted to try to focus where the knowledge gap was the widest. But I will say that we find the same degree of confusion and the same myths and misconceptions all everywhere that we go. So whether we're dealing language may be different, but whether we're dealing with individuals or advisors or institutions that we talk to, people still have the same kind of questions about isn't, doesn't uh, investing this way mean sacrificing returns? Or aren't the costs much higher? Or isn't it all just greenwashing? How easy is it to believe in any of these claims? So we get the same sort of questions wherever we go. We pitch this book for the individual, but I, I still think that the questions and the issues are pretty widespread. 
Let me move towards the end by either making an observation or maybe there'll be a question in here. <laughs> and in addition to me seeing ESG as a process, drawing once again from my compliance roots, if a company, if a small company did not have a compliance program, they couldn't access their own cash. And what I meant by that was they couldn't get a bank loan. PE wasn't going to be interested in them. They might have trouble getting insurance and they certainly were not going to get contract with large clients in energy that was Shell's Exxon. And you've already talked about Nike as a prime example. Is Would that observation also be true in the ESG world that smaller companies may not be able to access literally their own cash because people won't invest in them? People won't loan money to them. They may, they're being evaluated by insurance companies for their ESG programs and PE firms may say, no, that's going to be too risky for us down the road, or is it different in your world? And I think there's a question in there. I think it's a great observation. And I'm not sure that I see it in quite the same light. Compliance is an environment where, you know, if you don't, if you're not buttoned up, you're taking on a lot of risk by powerful government forces, right? Powerful legal forces. And I'm not sure that's necessarily the case with ESG programs for corporations because ESG is more investor preference. I I do think it's true that there are a great many large scale investors that are very focused on ESG. So to some degree, you lose out on, you, you risk looking backwards and not up with the times and not entirely honest about your business processes if you're not providing the kinds of non-financial disclosure that is starting to become more common. So I don't know that it's necessarily quite the same, especially in the States where there's still a certain amount of debate over the importance of value of ESG. But I do think that over the long term, the momentum behind ensuring that these non-financial factors are being talked about in the investment process is unstoppable. It's not going to go away. So from that perspective, I think that's, you know, you can hold it off or you can try to keep it at arm's length, but I don't think it's going to last for very long. Yeah. I think if you're a smaller company, I think you have faith or facing the same issues. It's just your audience is different. When the companies that we've been talking about so far today, the audience is the public investors, it's the big investors, it's the Black Rocks, it's the Vanguards, it's them, and, and, and et cetera. But if you're a smaller company, your big drivers are more like what you were talking about earlier, where it's the big companies that are your clients who are going to demand these sort of ESG performance factors from you. Or it might be the bank that you're working with as a source of your money or source of your capital demanding certain ESG characteristics of your or giving you incentives if you perform in a more ESG-friendly way. So I think it's a different conversation, but these themes and these investment themes and these values are going to end up reaching you eventually it just might take a little bit longer. Uh, I'd like to end by maybe asking you guys to look down the road into 2030 uh, and perhaps even beyond. And where do you see ESG investment advice uh, down that far? And will, will we be having more detailed and further discussions on a podcast like this? 
I certainly hope so. I will go back to what I said earlier. Is it going to be called ESG in 2030? I don't know. It could be called any number of things. The pop, the type of people who are most interested in this right now are the younger generations, millennials, Gen Z. Uh, they are the ones who are really picking up the and carrying the ball here. They are the ones who are most interested in it. And in seven to 10 years, as scary as it might seem, they're going to be in charge of a lot more money than they are now. So I think that the role of ESG investment advice, sustainable investment advice, whatever it is, is only going to grow. The world, sorry to say it, the world is going to keep getting hotter, right? So people are going to be focusing on this even more. These issues are not going to go away. And what the ESG investment advice looks like in 2030, I think it's hard to say, but are we going to be focused on these issues more in 2030 than we are today? I feel pretty confident that the answer is yes. Yeah, I agree, obviously. But I just, I, I don't think that if you want to get a preview of where we're going to be in a decade, you can look at Europe. And I think to, a, to maybe a lesser degree, you can look at Asia as well. But I think Europe is out front in terms of their legal structures, their, their compliance structures, their regulations that they've been putting in place. They've got quite a lot that they've just put in place this year. And the what's important about those regulations is that they're, ba they're backed by legislation. Uh, they're backed by large Europe-wide um, expectations and standards that have been put in place. They're very detailed from a data perspective. Um, and they're, they apply to everyone. Um, and we're, we're going there. In my mind, there's no way that can ultimately be avoided. Because sort of the cat's out of the bag that it can really help you as an investor to know what, what the risks are of not embracing diversity within your organization. Because companies used to be able to do that and nobody knew about it. It's not like that now. So people can, can see the information playing out. They can, and they can, the boycotts and all the other sort of things that happen there are opportunities for people to express their disgruntlement with the way that companies do things and on on any side of the equation going back to that world where nobody knew what was happening and so nobody cared just doesn't it just doesn't exist anymore so going forward there's going to be more focus there's going to be more regulations and standards and it's it's going to be that way certainly within a decade well, guys, unfortunately, we are at the end of our time for this episode. But before we leave, I wanted to ask you both, if our listeners wanted more information, where would be the best place or places for them to go? Of course, we're going to plug our book. As you can find it on Amazon. It's uh, available for pre-order now. But then other than that, you can certainly find us at tillinvestors.com. We've got links to all of our socials. We've got lots of great information for you aspiring sustainable investors out there. We'll have links to the book. We'll have links to a couple other things. If you are a fan of clicking on things, head over to tillinvestors.com and uh, click away. When is the book released? October 9th. All right, guys, this has been great. I really appreciate you taking the time to visit with me, and I look forward to continuing this conversation. Perfect. Thank you, Tom. It was great to, have, great to be here. Yeah, thanks so much. This is Tom Fox again. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the ESG Report. If you've enjoyed this episode, I hope you'll subscribe, rate, and review this podcast wherever great podcasts are listened to. The ESG Report is a part of the award-winning Compliance Podcast Network. If you'd like to be a part of the network, please give me a shout at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. 
This is Tom Fox. Hope you look forward to the next episode of the ESG Report.